If you have your Bibles, you can get those out now. And I'm going to actually ask you to turn to Genesis chapter 2. We've been going through the book of Ephesians verse by verse, and if you've been following long, you know that. If you're new uh, this week to joining us, uh, this is rare. Um, We're going to actually set the stage uh, for what we're going to be talking about next in Ephesians, which is marriage. And we're going to be breaking down the roles within uh, a healthy biblical marriage. And uh, But before we do that, I thought it was very important for us uh, to first really define what is a biblical marriage. What is marriage as defined by God? Uh, because I find more and more people are struggling with what that, that looks like, what that even is, and how to define that. And, and as a Jesus follower, what is my worldview with that? And, uh, and where do I find truth in that? And so we're going to break that down uh, today before we go into what the roles are. And so uh, since in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verse 31, Paul alludes to Genesis chapter 2, we're going to go uh, right into it in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, and we're going to break down uh, marriage. Let me pray for us, and then we'll go into our time together. Lord, I just ask that you would speak. Um, God, I just, uh, I pray that, Lord, as we go through this topic that uh, evokes so many uh, different emotions, uh, Lord, for all of us, depending on our background, uh, depending on our, our, our parents, depending on our current relationship, maybe we're married, maybe we're single, maybe we've been married, maybe we're going through just a difficult time. Um, God, I just pray uh, that your truth would shine through all those emotions and thoughts and that, Lord, we would understand more than anything today what you say about marriage. Uh, because we've got everybody else uh, talking about it, but Lord, we need to hear directly from you. And so we ask for that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. And, and as we think about the timing uh, of this topic, it's, it's critical. You know, we find ourselves uh, in this in this pandemic, and it, and it's really put uh, a strain on a lot of people. And and for some of us, we found ourselves even in situations with our spouses if we're married, uh, and it's created and caused a lot of tension. Tension that that wasn't there uh, for some of us. It was tension that was always there, but for whatever reason, now it's really there uh, because we're just around each other a lot more. Uh, but it also is encouraging because I, I because I've talked to some of you and you're like Steve, my marriage has never been stronger uh, as a result of this, and so that's encouraging. But I do think for a lot of us, we're experiencing uh, some challenges in our relationships, and I want to just also challenge this thought because I think uh, when we talk about marriage, a lot of times people that are single uh, either go great, so I can't participate in this, uh, or this is going to make me feel like there's something wrong with me, um, or maybe we're somebody that's that's gone through marriage, that's divorced, uh, and, and we don't really want to talk about it. Uh, I, I want to challenge you to hang with me, okay? Because I, I really believe that this is important uh, because uh, if, you know, if however you've grown up, your parents' marriage has had a dramatic effect on your life uh, for the better or the worst. Um, But also, um, there's a lot to learn as you either think about going into marriage or whether you're in marriage or or whether you've been married for a long time um, or you just find yourself uh, divorced, you're no longer married and and you look back. um, You know what? I want to just encourage you to, to go all in with what God wants to do with our time together. 
like I said, if you're single, maybe, maybe, maybe even you don't feel called to be married. I want to encourage you to hang with this. If you're sitting there right now and you've been wounded by marriage, I want to encourage you to participate in this. And if you feel like your marriage is even thriving and you say, oh, this will be great uh, for other people, I want to encourage you uh, as well to participate knowing that God wants to do something fresh, maybe even in your marriage right now. But right now, let's just define what is biblical marriage because there's a lot of confusion. And, uh, and, and I hear a lot of people either try and avoid truth in this or soften truth in this. And, uh, and so let's, let's try and, and really unpack this. When you study uh, traditional marriage, now, because I, I hear this a lot. Uh, I hear, Steve, uh, I, I believe in traditional marriage. And, and when people, when you hear the word traditional marriage, a lot of times people think that also means biblical marriage. And so I, I want to break down a little bit of a difference here because if you study traditional marriage and you go back 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, uh, 60 years to, to really uh, the baseline of traditional marriage, actually what you see when you study is you see absentee fathers, you see devalued women, and you see this mutual tolerance. In other words, um, you see marriage uh, that be- has become nothing more than a contract that two people uh, kept in order to stay together for legal or financial purposes. Okay, which all of that is a far cry when you think about God's intended design for oneness. When we think about becoming one flesh, this incredible act of intimacy. And so as we, as we look at uh, defining what marriage is, uh, in, in, a, in a Bible dictionary that I have, it described marriage this way. It says, marriage is the sacred covenantal union of one man and one woman formed when the two swear before God an oath of lifelong loyalty and love to one another, the sign and seal of which is sexual intercourse. God instituted the first marriage in the Garden of Eden when he gave Eve to Adam as a wife. And in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, let's look at it. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so we see the very uh, first uh, really um, union, um, the first marriage here in the Garden of Eden between Adam and Eve. 
And as we think about that beginning point, and, and some of us, uh, or probably most of us, maybe even all of us, uh, know that story. Uh, we know what it said there in the beginning, but then we go, yeah, but that was then, and this is now, and things have changed. Well, it's really interesting in the New Testament uh, how Jesus actually reaffirms the Genesis account of marriage and its design, how it was created and instituted. In, in Matthew chapter 19, uh, verses 3 through 6, uh, these, these Pharisees come up to Jesus and, and it says this, And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read... And this is when he quotes Genesis. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So what we see right here in the New Testament is Jesus quote the Genesis account of marriage, the, uh, the original marriage, the model of marriage, and, and he goes back to that point. And what do we see there? We see he created one, a man and a woman. So marriage is made to be between a man and a woman from a biblical perspective to only each other. Okay, so it's it's a man and a woman to only each other, committed to only each other. In other words, you're not bringing other people into this marriage. And then it's till what? Till death do you part to the very end. That's the commitment. That is marriage to each other before God. And now here's the reality. Because God created marriage, it is much more than a ceremony. I hear, oh, it's just a ceremony. It's just a piece of paper. It's not that big of a deal. Because more and more in our culture, less and less people are getting married because they don't think it's that big of a deal. They actually think it puts restrictions and all these things that you will hear. And they go, man, well, almost half end in divorce. Why would I do that and everything? I'll tell you what. Marriage is so critical critical and it's so important because God created it. God did designed it for you and for me. And when you, and when you think about just this, this whole like covenant, this word, uh, when studying the Bible, you see covenants all throughout the book. Covenants made between close friends. We see uh, in 1 Samuel 18, a, a covenant between uh, two friends, between um, Jonathan and, and David. And then we see even nations make covenants together. Um, but the most prominent covenants in the Bible are covenants made by God with individuals or by God with families or groups of people. And we see that uh, with Abraham, Genesis 17:2 says that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. He makes a covenant with the nation of Israel, with Moses. So the, the, the marriage relationship that we're talking about here, that God has created, it is the most deeply covenantal relationship possible between two human beings. In Ephesians uh, 5.31, uh, we've been going through Ephesians uh, each week, Paul talks about covenant when he quotes Genesis 2.24, which we just read. And, and, and as, we, as we look at, uh, you know, what we read in Genesis there, and, and, and we saw that, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast 
to his wife. We got to really break that down here if we're going to fully understand what that means. Hold fast to is a Hebrew word. Well, in, in the Hebrew, that word literally means to be glued to something. <laughs> Elsewhere in the Bible, the word means to unite to someone through a covenant, a binding promise or oath. And so the marriage uh, covenantal relationship is so deep because it has both God and people aspects to it. Okay, so it's got God, it's got a God component, the vertical component, it's got a person to person, it's got the horizontal, it's got both of those, and so it is critical, it is unique, it is deeper than just these other covenants uh, that we've even looked we've even looked at, and we and we hear it talked about like in Malachi uh, chapter two verse fourteen, um, it talks about that marital covenant when it says, "But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless." though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. In Proverbs 2, 17, uh, it, it, it talks about uh, this, this, uh, this, this problem of, of this wayward wife, and it says, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God? So, This is important. The covenant made between a husband and wife is done before God and therefore with God as well as with the spouse. So it's a covenant with God and with the spouse. That's why in many traditional Christian wedding services, they will make vows to God and each other. They're acknowledging this. Uh, Timothy Keller uses this example where he says, imagine a house with an A-frame structure. The two sides of the home meet at the top and hold one another up, but underneath the foundation holds up both of the sides. The covenant with God strengthens the partners to make a covenant with each other. That's why it's the deepest human covenant. In other words, you have two people coming together, but it is God that is the foundation. God is the one holding them up in the first place, which allows them to go together. So so this is not possible without the foundation being God, and that is why it is not just two people. It is God and those two uh, individuals coming together, forming this incredible covenant. He is the foundation. He strengthens the partners to be able to come together. Question is what? So, what's the purpose of marriage? What is the purpose? And in Genesis chapter one and two, as God was creating uh, the world, He looked at what He had done and repeatedly said that it was good. Seven times in the first chapter alone, He says it was good. Have you ever sat back after accomplishing something and you just go, "Wow, that was impressive." And you just appreciate the work you did. Like maybe you put together some Ikea furniture, which is typically really difficult uh, or, and, or annoying. And, and after you're done, you go, ah, I did that. Um, isn't it kind of cool to, to look and think that even satisfaction is a gift from God? Even that feeling of satisfaction that you can have accomplishing a task is a gift from God. But as we, as we look at, at, at Genesis 
And we see how as he's making creation, as he's creating, God keeps saying it's good. But then all of a sudden you're surprised by something. Something catches you off guard. You know, what, what we read there in, in Genesis chapter 2, 18, do you remember? It, it said this, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So after he's acknowledged and said, all these things are good, sin hasn't entered the world, all this, it says that it is not good that man should be alone. Now, that's kind of a, a shocking statement, right? After everything is good, he looks at man, he looks at Adam, and he goes, it's not good for man to be alone. Now, how in the world could Adam be in a not good uh, place or condition when he was in a perfect world and evidently had a perfect relationship with God? Perfect body, everything. So he's in this perfect state, perfect world, relationship with animals, relationship with God, all of this uh, to, to a place that we just go, man, that would be so incredible. So he has all of that, and yet we still see that it was not good. Why is that? Well, let's look at Genesis chapter 1, 26. Genesis chapter 1, 26, it says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Did you catch this? It said, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So who is us that he's talking to here? Who, who, who is God talking to when he says, like us? Well, what we know from Scripture through uh, Jesus and his work and coming back, what we, what we see and understand and know here is that God is triune, meaning one God uh, has existed from all eternity as three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and they know and love one another in perfect harmony. Three in one, perfect harmony, Incredible. And so we see that even here in the Genesis account, in Genesis 1, 26, we see, uh, we see our triune God speaking in this way. And so when we look at being created in God's image, that means we were designed for relationships. See, see, when you look at the Trinity and you see the perfect harmony uh, in that, you see that, that perfect relationship dynamic, uh, we are created to experience relationships. See, Adam, Adam was in paradise. He's got paradise, not, and, and not just like paradise, like, like uh, I, I think some of us, we see people and, and they have all the money in the world, but we're like, man, they must be miserable because they, they don't have God. Well, Adam had paradise, <laughs> perfection, and he had God. And yet, we see that with all of that, it did not fulfill the relationship capacity that God had built in him the desire there, what was needed there. And so what you see is, is that relational capacity that you have been given, uh, 
Uh, it is not fulfilled simply by our relationship with God. God designed us to need relationships with other human beings. So you are designed <laughs> to need relationships with other people. That's how he's designed us. That's how he's wired us. That's why even in paradise, loneliness was such a difficult thing. That's why when we look at uh, our maybe people we know, friends, or just people that we look up to, or people that have all this money and these in extravagant lifestyles, we see that all of that, all of those pleasures, all the paradise in the world, all the money, it's unable to fulfill what only love through relationships can. You know, there's a scene in this movie uh, I was watching. And in this scene, uh, it, it was one of those uh, rom-coms, romantic comedies. And I was watching with my wife, was not watching by myself. And this, uh, this guy invites uh, this girl um, they're on a date and, and, and she's, and she's seen his house and, and he's got so much money and she's walking through and she's just blown away. He's got this incredible car and, and just all these things. And then all these just unnecessary things. And, and she's just, and she's like laughing and she's looking at all of this. And, um, and it's interesting. There's this dialogue between them where he starts, uh, over the, course of the conversation as you know he puts his guard down a little bit he starts just speaking truth to her about the broken uh, relationship of his parents and how his father died and passed down all this wealth to him and how he just tries to buy his own happiness and how he's actually miserable and lonely and he's sharing that and, and as I was thinking about just the sermon and and thinking about how God's wired us, it's like, man, that makes, that makes sense. It makes sense that you can have all these things that you can buy, that you can look for all of this and that to, to help fill this void. But the problem is God has created that void, but God has also created the solution to that void. In response to being alone, what do we see? God created a helper, companion, a friend. See, when, when the man sees the woman, what, what did he respond? He, we see in, in Genesis 2, uh, 18 through, uh, through 25, it says, Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my sh myself. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So, so literally he sees Eve and he's like, At last! Yes, she's like me. Oh, my goodness. And, and so he's so excited about uh, this, and, and God creates this. This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And in the beginning with marriage, God gave the man, when we look at, 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 at what he gifts us in marriage, God gave the man a companion to be his spouse. Companionship. So we also see essentially the first mention of gender in the Bible, which occurs with the very first mention of humanity itself. In Genesis chapter 1, uh, 27 and 28, uh, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So what we see here, is, what this means is that our maleness or our femaleness is not incidental uh, to our humanness, but it constitutes our very essence. See, God does not make us into a uh, does not make us into this generic uh, humanity that's later differentiated from the start. Uh, from the start, we see that we are either male or we're female. Now, this means I cannot understand myself if I try to ignore the way that God has designed me, or if I despise the way He's designed me, or despise the gifts He's given me to help me fulfill my calling. Because how He's designed me, male or female, uh, there is a specific will, intention. There's a design. There's a calling, and and all of that comes back to me going. This is this is how God's designed me for a specific plan and purpose, and so I move forward in that. See, if the postmodern view that gender is wholly a social construct were, were, were true, then we could follow whatever path seemed good to us. Whatever just seems good. But if our gender is at the heart of our nature, we risk losing a key part of ourselves if we abandon our distinctive male and female roles. There's incredible design in it by God. Like Genesis shows us that men and women were created with absolute equality. Both are equally made in the image of God, equally blessed, and equally, it says, given dominion over the earth. This means that men and women together must carry out God's mandate to build civilization and culture. What did it say, uh, right? Be fruitful, multiply, build families and, and human uh, communities. And, and so we see that after making us male and female uh, in there in the beginning, God tells uh, them to be fruitful, to fill the earth. And so we see uh, that this gift also of marriage is a gift for creating new human life. It's something that, and it's something that we can only carry out together, right? Male and female, that's the only way we can even do that. Neither sex has all the characteristics necessary, only in complementary union can we we do that command. So what we see here is male and female are complementary by design, by creation. When God sees Adam alone, uh, a, a male without a female, he, God, God says it's not good. It's not good for him. It is the first thing in the universe that God finds imperfect. We see Adam is, is the physical source of Eve, he, and he's given this responsibility of, you, of naming her. He says, I'm going to name her woman. Uh, both of these elements in the narrative lay the basis for what we're going to talk about later in the New Testament about husbands and headship. However, despite giving authority to uh, the man, which we're going to break down in, in, the, in the next few weeks, the woman is not described as inferior at all. All. And that is so important to hear because um, I know by how people have either preached, how they've taken scripture, and that they have presented a way to where women are inferior, and that is just not true or uh, biblical at all. In fact, man, that really uh, is disrespectful to God. 
And so you better not treat any female in a way that communicates that. What we see in Genesis 2.18 is she is called a helper suitable for him. That's what she's called in Genesis 2.18. Now, helper, when we think about it in our terms, it means what? Like just uh, merely assisting someone who could do the task almost as well, right? With, without help. So when we look at that, uh, initially we go, ah, that's not, that's not great. But, but when we break down what the Hebrew word azar is here that, that's used to describe a helper, uh, this is pretty pretty nuts to think about. That word is almost always used in the Bible to describe God himself. So, so don't take just the word helper and go, are oh, you got to be kidding me? No, no, no. That is the same word in the Hebrew that is used of God himself that we see in the Bible Exodus 18, 4, and then it says in the second part of this verse, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Do you think that was just some like little help? No, the God of help, that help is what delivered from Pharaoh. Psalm, uh, Psalm 33, 20, our soul waits for the Lord who is, he is our help and our shield. He is our help and our shield. Does that sound just like, oh, we could have done this. I'm glad he's just helping. Oh, that's good. Just, just, just a little bit of help here to help me finish the task. Oh, I'm glad they were there. I didn't really need them, but I'm glad. No, no, no. That means that, 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 that was necessary. God saved me. God brought redemption. God shielded me. All of these things you see from this word here, helper. And we see also in scripture, other times it's used to describe military help, reinforcement enforcements that come in without which we would lose a battle, right? So that's the description of this word in the Hebrew, this, this helper, um, which, which means, man, this is not just this, oh, this will make your life a little better. No, uh, this takes everything. And, and we look at it and go, man, woman was made uh, to be this strong helper. This, this word we see uh, for fit because Remember in Genesis chapter two, uh, as it talks about, I will make a helper, it says fit for him. In Genesis 2, 18, I will make a helper fit for him. So this word fit, it translates a compound phrase that is literally uh, like opposite to him, okay? So what Genesis two uh, is doing here, it implies that each is incomplete without the other. Do you understand that? So when it talks about fit, it's literally fit fit in a piece to where uh, the pieces were incomplete without that. So it could not, it could not be complete without this specific fit. You know what this reminds me of is that, that movie from a long time ago, Jerry Maguire, uh, when Tom Cruise says, you complete me. And I go, oh my goodness, it's biblical. <laughs> but when we see male and female, we are to fit one another, like two pieces of a puzzle that fit together, differentiated so that together they can complete the whole. So just like this puzzle, and some of you have like, you've put together this puzzle but you're missing one piece and you don't know where it is. You can't find it. And you are looking all over the ground, over the floor, on the table, wherever, because you're like, I got to find it. I got to complete the puzzle. I'm missing this one piece. When you think about how God has designed and wired us, he has the completion to the puzzle. And that spouse is the completion. 
They are different. They are designed to complete. It's funny when we think about how they complete to make us, us whole. Many, you know, many of us, uh, we see this, if, if you're married, you see this in your marriage. Uh, and, and it's also interesting how these differences that sometimes infuriate you about your spouse are also differences that complete you. In Genesis chapter 3, 16 uh, and 17, it recounts the, the effects of the fall uh, after they ate of the fruit and they weren't supposed to. And, uh, and we see uh, the result um, in Genesis chapter 3 after they, after they did that. And, and, and not only, remember, right after they sinned and did what they weren't supposed to do, eating of that fruit, uh, but we see uh, when God first uh, is like, Adam, what have you done? What does he do? Immediately, we see the catastrophic, we see the catastrophic effects of sin. He goes from she completes me to it's her fault. And then we see in Genesis 3, 16 and 17, it says, To the woman, he said, I will surely, now this is the results of that, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to, listen to this, your desire shall be contrary to, to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you in pain. You shall eat of it all the days of your life. And so we see they've sinned. They're kicked out of the garden. And we immediately see the change in the unity, the design, the God-designed unity between man and woman. We see blame shifting, finger pointing. We see the exploitation of each other. Uh, sin took the very things that brought completeness and it brought division. That is what sin does. That is what sin wants to do with the view of marriage in our culture today. It wants to distort it. It wants to twist it. It wants to wreck it. Because when you think about the issues, and we can point to all different kinds of issues and social issues and all of these things, when you look at the core, you see a breakdown in the family. You see it. You see a breakdown in marriage. And we see that rather than their differences being a source of completion in the way that God's designed it, those very things become the source of, I'm going to point that flaw in you because it's different than me. I'm going to oppress you because of that. I'm going to hold that against you. It's just crazy to think that sin takes the very thing that brings completeness and it brings division. How many of you, if you're married, have had fights over differences that actually complete you? It happens, huh? And we see that after this division, we see that after this sin entered the world, and we see at its core as it impacted marriage and God's design for marriage. We see throughout the rest of Scripture, we see the continual decline from this point. As you look throughout Scripture, you see the continual decline. 
you see in the Old Testament. We see, we see all of a sudden, we see polygamy uh, in that. And, 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 and I've heard people say, well, yeah, the Bible's about polygamy and all that. And I'm like, no, uh, the Bible never endorses uh, polygamy. And, and the Bible actually shows the consequences of it. Uh, it shows the regret of that. You see, uh, you see uh, it, it, like continually distortion. Um, we see homosexuality in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. We see uh, adultery uh, happening. We see uh, divorce, divorce happening to the point where uh, during Moses' day, they're like, oh my goodness, because it was happening so frequently. And, and what we see at the heart of these sins uh, or distortions of marriage, of, of God's design for marriage is we see selfishness. Me taking what I want, how I feel, my confusion, my biases, and acting upon them in a way that pleases my desires, what I want. And so what I do is I place my desires over God's will and design for my life, thinking that this will make me the most happy, this will make me fulfilled. But in the reality, I have this gap, I have this space that he's already created the way to complete. But I'm saying, no, I don't want your completion. I don't want the last pieces to the puzzle to complete me. I've, I've found it. I've, I know what I need. I know what I want. I know how I'm, how I'm wired, God. So, so I'm going to do it my way. And he's sitting there and he's like, you are missing out and we are seeing the continual decline of what God has designed for us. And we're placing our feelings over obedience to God. Listen, there is a difference and when you think about just your view uh, in marriage and how you approach a biblical view of marriage, it is so hard and you will find yourself, if you hold a biblical view of marriage, I'm telling you, you're going to be the minority uh, when it comes to how people generally think. But here's the thing. There's a difference between equality and tolerance. We are called to love our neighbor as ourselves, We are called to love everybody equally, but we are not to support and remain unbothered by things that are clearly in opposition to God's design. Like, like, remember, like, like God is unchanging yesterday, today, and forever. Like God does not just shift and change as politics shift and change, as cultures shift and change. And he doesn't even do that by different parts of the globe and all of that. Oh, the United States is over here. Oh, they're over here. Oh, South America is over here. Like he doesn't do that. He's unchanging. The ones who change, the ones who do, that's us. And it's, be, and it's because of that, it's because we change, it's because we look for all these other things, it's because we continually, in our selfishness, go, I can do this better. I figured out a different way. I figured out a way that meets my needs better. We continually go after that. We continually then find ourselves back on our knees going, God, I need you. I need you, God. See, God He's unchanging. He, he's not ever, he's never been okay with sin. In fact, he tried, well, he did. He accomplished a way to defeat sin through Jesus Christ. And what we see, you guys, and this is the hope of the message right here, through Jesus' work, we begin to see a restoration of the original unity and love between both sexes. See, Jesus both elevates the equality of women on the scene and he also redeems the roles given to men and women. As we read, 
Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11. In fact, I think I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read it again because it's so good. Um, in Galatia, or Ephesians, Philippians chapter 2, uh, verses 5 through 11, just, just listen to this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, that's one of the earliest hymns uh, to Jesus sung by the church, and it celebrates uh, how uh, although Jesus was equal with God, he emptied himself of his glory and took on the role of a servant. Jesus shed his divine privileges without becoming any less divine, and he took on the most submissive role, a servant who dies in his master's service. We see the equality of the first and second persons of the Godhead and also the voluntary submission of the Son to the Father to secure our salvation. We are differently gendered to reflect this life within the Trinity. Male and female, we are invited to mirror and reflect the harmony of the Trinity in our marriages. Now, that's that's huge for us today, but I want to just say this. If you are single, because Typically in these talks, it's like, man, I'm single. God, I, I I need this. And Adam, it wasn't good for him to be alone and all of that. And and so, God, where are you? Do you see me? Do you know me? What's going on? Why has this not happened? And um, I want you to know that Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, 7 since, says singleness is a gift. And that wasn't just like this flippant thing he said. No, uh, we look at he was single. We look at even Jesus. Um was single. And not, I'm not saying that's your lot in life. I'm just saying that there's truth to the reality that you're not held back in any way because of that. And if God calls you to singleness, he still can fulfill the desires of your heart. It's not like this penalty box. And I feel like Christian, we, we, we take these verses and that and we present this like, if you don't get married, then you never get to experience the fullness of God and all this. That's just not true. Do you see that in Paul's writings? Like he never got to experience, you don't see that. You see the opposite, okay? And so to place this, like almost this price tag on what it means for him to fulfill the desires of my heart, that's just not even, uh, it's not even of God, and I'm not saying this is your lot in life. I'm just saying that let's stop looking at this has to happen for me to be able to experience all of this. Like, no, the key is, is the relational dynamic and you are already brought in, as we've been talking about Ephesians, in Christ. You are adopted into his family. You have uh, all these new relationships, brothers, sisters. You have a heavenly father that you didn't have before as a Jesus follower. And so invest, cultivate those relationships and knowing that you were designed and created for relationships and there's people that you are going to meet that you are going to connect with that are going to complete you in different ways which are incredible as well. 
And I want to say this too. If you're, if you're divorced, um, I, I want to share this because this is so important. The Gospels are filled with examples of how Jesus dealt with people who were struggling with guilt and failure, including one woman who had been married five times and who was currently living with a man that she was not married to in John chapter 4. And, and the thing that we see patterned is where guilt and sin were involved. Jesus didn't minimize it. He didn't go, oh, that's okay. But in every case, he acted with redemption. Redemption. His goal was to help them to begin a new and, and, and this, this, this fresh relationship life through God's grace and strength. And, and so I want to encourage you in that because I know, you know I mean, I mean, just by watching, uh, you know, there's almost 50 percent, you know, that that have gone through that. And um, and I, I just think it's really important for you to know if that didn't work out or something happened there or even you look back and you go, man, I wasn't who I, I should have been and I wasn't where I needed to be or or they weren't. And you're holding on to that. Like, listen, this is a God of redemption. And Jesus modeled that every step of the way. And he sought out and he went for those people that needed to hear that message. And maybe that's what you you need to hear this morning because you've had this negative bend towards marriage because of that. And it's got no business being like that for you. It just doesn't because of the gospel, because of what Jesus modeled, because of how he changed that perception, because of even the brokenness after the fall and what that's done to marriages as, as, as sin has just continued to distort God's design for marriage. Jesus came back and said, no, this is the model. And we're going to be talking about that in the next uh, three weeks here, how he modeled, how we're to model this, uh, as husband and wives. And if you need help in your marriage, in your relationship, please reach out to us. If, if you're newly married or, or you're just struggling uh, for clarity, we, have, we even have a new community that's starting that's talking about marriage uh, and that and we'd love for you to be a part of that. So reach out to us. But here's, here's, here's what I want to close with. If our main purpose as the image bearers of God is to glorify God, and enjoy, enjoy our relationship with him forever. Clearly, this is also the chief purpose of marriage, is to glorify him in our marriage, is to make much of him. Amen? God bless you guys. Look forward to unpacking uh, more of this in Ephesians in the next few weeks. Let's pray.